Imagine for a moment that you're hiking in the woods. You go deeper and deeper, enjoying God's creation, looking around you, smelling the smells, seeing the sights, and suddenly you realize you're lost. Maybe you tried a new trail. Maybe you got off the trail and started exploring. But you're lost and you have no idea where to go. Maybe you feel lost in the world. Maybe the culture around you has you feeling lost. You don't know where to go. You've gotten into a situation you don't know how to get out of. You're lost. When we're lost like that, there's a deafening silence. Yes, there's things going on all around us, but all we focus on is the lostness, is the silence. And we hope desperately that there's an answer, a way out. That lostness, that silence is what was occurring in the Bible between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We call it the intertestamental period, the 400 years of silence. When God didn't give any recorded messages to the prophets, people were left to wonder what was going on. It was a silence that deafened. It made people wonder what was going to happen. Where was hope going to come from? And so this morning we ask, what do you do when the silence is deafening? We're going to be in the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. So right before that intertestamental period began, and we'll, we'll use this to help us understand a bit about Silence, but I want to set the scene. Morally, uh, the world was in a state of extraordinary moral degeneration. Chastity and marriage were the exception. Divorce and immorality were the rule. Seductive cults ran rampant with new philosophies of how we should live life, how we should change the norm, how we should, should somehow better things, but none of it uh, truly met the needs of the culture. From the religious perspective, religious historian James Stalker writes the following. Religion had sadly declined. The externals had been multiplied, but the inner spirit had disappeared. However rude and sinful the old nation had sometimes been, it was incapable in its worst periods of producing majestic religious figures who kept high the ideal of life and preserved the connection of the nation with heaven, and the inspired voices of the prophets kept the stream of truth running fresh and clean. But during 400 years, no prophet's voice had been heard. The records of the old prophetic utterances were still preserved with almost idolatrous reverence. But there were not men with even the necessary amount of the Spirit's inspiration to understand what God was doing. There was a silence, a lostness, people wondering what was going to happen. And so we look at Malachi. Just before that period started, Malachi the prophet shared the following with the people of Israel. Starting in chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. 
Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. So we're going to look at reasons why God may seem silent and then look at the solution to that silence. Reason one comes from verse two, where God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? The people of Israel are basically saying, oh, really? Oh, really? You've loved us? Oh, really? How? How have you you loved us? They don't believe that God has loved them. There is a silence when we fail to see God's work. There's a silence when we fail to see God's work. A culture that has turned away from God does not see what God is doing. Demonstration. I don't see what you're doing. When you turn away from God, you don't know what God is doing. You're not aware of it. You're not paying attention to it. Malachi prophesied to a people who were quickly returning to their old ways. Because if we look at Israel's history, we know that they were slaves in Egypt and they got to go to the promised land and many things happened and it was great and God was doing things. And they were exiled again. And then God called them back. God called them back. And we had people like Ezra and Nehemiah who helped to rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall. And it was a great time in the history of Israel, but it was a moment. It was a moment in Israel's history. And the Israelites were living off of a moment without momentum. They lived off of a moment without momentum. They finally thought they were getting what seemed like it would never happen. They were going back to where God had wanted them. It was a century-long process for God to bring them back from exile, for them to have this, this rebuilt temple, this rebuilt wall. And it's the context of Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, that popular verse, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to give you a hope and a future. This is the, the future and the hope that he was talking about. They were going to be coming back to a place where they could thrive and be God's people. And that took a hundred years to accomplish. But in 10, one decade later, they had already reverted. And that's what Malachi is writing to. And so all through Malachi, we see different themes. In chapter one, it's ingratitude and irreverence. People aren't thankful for what God has done and they don't, they don't revere God. They don't, they don't have a, a knowledge of, of his greatness in their life. In chapter two, he addresses marriages, unfaithfulness, relationships outside of what God had designed. The people were quickly falling back. Then chapter three, which is perhaps the most popular section of, of Malachi in terms of how well it's known, is also the one that makes us grab our wallets and hold them tight because it's where God calls us to not rob him of the wealth he has given us. The people were reverting away from what God had done for them. In fact, one commentator said that you know, Malachi was written for then, but it might as well have been written for right now because it is so practical. And so if you happen to have just finished the book of the Bible you've been reading lately, go to Malachi next. It's very practical. You'll still see things about your attitude, see things about your relationships, and see things about your money that will directly apply to you. Check it out. It's worth your time. But in one decade, after 100 years of God bringing them back, 
they reverted. It's because they were living off of that moment, off of that moment when the temple was back, when, when things seemed to be going well, but they had no momentum. They had the moment, but they had no momentum. And we're the same way. We love our moments, and moments are important. They're very important. When I, was, when I was a youth, I would do things like go to creation or go to a concert or go hear a speaker, and there would be just a mass of people moving to the front. They had a moment where God was very real, and that's so important. For our children, that might be vacation Bible school, a moment where God is so real that you know something has to happen, and that is wonderful. As a church, we create those moments. We strive to work together with the leading of the Holy Spirit and make those moments happen, but a moment without momentum falls flat. I've told you before about my time in England where I I really sensed God's call to ministry and I was in the Bible regularly and, and I really had a momentum going. I was moving quickly towards God and I was learning more and experiencing more and God was not silent in that time because they had a momentum. But if we're not careful, momentum will fade too. I went to seminary and suddenly I'm studying the Bible all the time. And when you do that, there's a real danger that it becomes an academic process and not a devotional um, style of work. You lose your momentum. And so you live off the moment. You live off the moment. But the farther away the moment gets, the harder it is to live off of it. Andy Stanley writes, God often uses moments to launch faith. But those moments were never designed to be the foundation of our faith. Sometimes God miraculously answers prayers and sometimes he seems to be silent. Sometimes he works within our short time frame and sometimes it, gets, it seems as if he ignores our time frame altogether. You see, we've got to have a faith with, with momentum or else it stops. A faith with momentum will get you through the silent times. A faith with momentum will get you through those times when God's not working the way you thought he should or would. Get you through those times when he's not working according to your timeline. Momentum is so important. We celebrate the moments. That's why when we have the big baptism services before Confirmation Sunday, it's such a great time. It's a moment, and we celebrate that. We celebrate Christmas because it was a moment in history when when God came, came to encounter us. And it's a moment that we celebrate. Nothing wrong with them, but they are not the foundation. We cannot forego our momentum and only focus on the moment. Because when you're looking for moments, you're going to be disappointed with your church real quick. You need to have momentum. Put this a little bit more practically for you. You can buy a new car, new car, new truck, new whatever, and you're so excited about it. You want to tell people about it, give them rides, show it off, all that stuff. And that's a moment, and that's great. Your moment is wonderful, and it gets you excited and fired up but you can't expect to go anywhere just on the, on the moment. You need momentum. You need gas. The moment will get you nowhere. The momentum powers you through. And you're always going to need more momentum than you will moments. God had been faithful to Israel. He, had, he brought them out of slavery. He brought them to the promised land. He provided food for them, gave them all these moments But there had to be something day to day that pushed them forward or else they would revert. And that's what we're seeing in Malachi. There was no momentum to keep them going. And by the way, in your car, gas isn't enough. Yeah, that might be what gets you by from week to week. But every once in a while, you've got to check the tire pressure. You've got to change the oil. 
You've got to do other things. And that's why you can't just run on gas. That's why in church, you can't just have that same Sunday school class you've been in for 20 years because eventually that momentum's not enough. You've got to do something else to keep it fresh, keep it real, keep the momentum going. So there is silence when we fail to see God's work because we've, we've lost our momentum. Verses three and four, there is silence when we're selfish. The Lord said, but I have hated Esau and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant. We'll call them the wicked territory. Edom's called the wicked territory where we know the Israelites, they inherit the promised land. Complete opposite. Complete opposite. And a little history on Edom for you. Edom was the nation that descended from Esau. If we think back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then we remember the story of Jacob and Esau. The line from Jacob became the Israelites, God's chosen people. The line from Esau became the Edomites, not God's chosen people. And if we look at the Edomites, based on these verses, where they look at what they can build despite the hardships, what they can do, it seems they lived a life empty of external motivation. Everything was motivated from self. There was no purpose beyond what they were doing. They wanted success for the sake of success. Even if God was gonna tear it down, they were gonna build it back up because they, success for the sake of success. An example. Last night, many of us shared in this example. The Penn State game. It was exciting. It was fantastic, great game. I had given up on it. I went to study for my sermon. And then Laura called me from the other room and said, they just got another touchdown. And so I went back out and watched it. And that's, that's good. But ultimately, why do we celebrate that? Ultimately, what's the point? Is it to win, to succeed, to overcome adversity or anything else a poster might say? It's not what we're called to do as God's people. As God's people, there's got to be something more than, than simply winning, something more than simply succeeding, something more than a trophy. Now, it's not, it's not wrong, just to be clear. It's okay to watch football. It's okay to uh, watch people use their gifts and their talents in unique ways. God wants us to enjoy ourselves, but he wants us to enjoy ourselves under his reign and under his rules and with a focus on him. Because if you're just doing life chasing a trophy, then the years you get it, you'll be great. You've had that moment. But the years you don't get the trophy, you've got to have momentum, something to push you through. And so the Edomites, they were that kind of people. They would do good for the sake of doing good. And they'd feel good about themselves because there's nothing else worth feeling good about, really. And that's selfish. That's just selfish. And it rolls us right back into what we talked about in the first point. Because when, you're, when you act like that, then you exhibit ingratitude and irreverence. Then suddenly your relationships aren't that important, so our marriages get troubled, our relationships are not God-honoring, and we refuse to give God what is his. We refuse to give God what is his. And that's why Malachi had to write this book to the Israelites, because their actions were making them seem more like the people who were not God's chosen people, than it was making them seem like they were God's chosen people. 
So how do we watch out for that? How do we keep that from happening? We must check our motives. What's the reason behind why we do things? What's the underlying issue? What, what, what motivates us to do it? And to, I'm not on a soapbox here. It's actually in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In all things. If you're watching a football game, how can God be glorified by that? Well, it could be glorified if maybe you take the opportunity during during halftime to have a Bible study with the guys you invited over. Or just to be thankful for the time you get to spend together with the people God's put in your life. You must bring glory to God. So being good for goodness sake is not the same as being good for what God has called you to do. This is where it gets a little tricky because especially this time of year, Charities are, are all around us and we want to we wanna give and feel like we're helping and we do that and we need to be careful what our motives are. Where we put our money tells us where we put our faith. And if we put our faith in, in charities and things that have nothing to do with God or his work, we need to be cautious with that. If we're robbing God of our resources, even in the good things we give, we're still missing the point. That's not to say you can't give to a, to a non-Christian charity. It's just saying, don't rob God of it. Don't say, well, this year, the, my tithe for this month is gonna go to whatever charity. Make sure God is honored first and foremost. Don't fall into the habit of the Edomites. We do good because there's a love that comes from Christ and that's what motivates us to do good. That's why we give somebody a meal. That's why we give somebody money. Because it's one little way that we can contribute to, to God working in their life and them seeing God be real and be magnified. Malachi 1.4 ends with this line describing the Edomites, the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. You see, when our motives aren't right, when our motives aren't right, God is not in it. And you're either for him or against him. So if you're not for him, he's against you. And the Lord is indignant forever. So there's a silence when we fail to see God's work and there's a silence when we're selfish because we're not paying attention to what God is doing. To go back to the, to the woods for a moment, to the forest, you're lost in that silence. All these things are going on around you. In the culture, people are not revering God. People are not having wholesome relationships. People are not giving God what he deserves. And there's a lostness, a silence. You're walking through the woods trying to figure out how to get out. And then you hear a sound. Something different, not the birds chirping, not a stream. Something different, traffic, maybe voices, maybe a search party. Deliverance is coming and the silence is shattered. 
and there's joy. Joy in the midst of silence. There's joy in the midst of silence because silence is shattered when Jesus enters the picture. That's what we're all about here. Our silence is shattered when Jesus enters the picture. Malachi 5 says, your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Beyond the border of Israel. God was reaching out to his people, but here we see that, that the Lord will be magnified someday even beyond Israel. New Testament times, that became the church. So beyond Israel, beyond the church, someday every person is going to encounter God. Richard Taylor writes, the history of every culture, society, people, nation, community, clan, family, and individual who has ever lived or will ever live leads inevitably to an encounter with the sovereign God. It goes beyond just Israel in the book of Malachi. Then when God opens that up to the church, it goes beyond the church. Every person is going to have an encounter with God. God will be known to all, and that's what we celebrate at Advent. We celebrate the coming opportunity to have this encounter with God, for God to to draw near, to get to know us, to have this encounter with him. But in 2016, we're not looking forward to a baby in a manger. We're looking forward to a king coming on a white horse, It's powerful. Our silence is going to stop. Joy is coming. We celebrate the birth of Christ. We sing, O come all ye faithful. We sing Silent Night. We do all this to remind us of what God has already done. He already fulfilled one of his promises. He's already come once. So we have every reason to believe he's going to come again. That's also the reason we've got to keep that momentum going. Because when he comes again and we have that encounter with him, for those who have the momentum, it'll be a great experience. For those who don't, it won't be so good. And our momentum isn't just for ourselves. Our momentum carries us to tell other people about him too. So as a church, through our programming, through our groups, through our interactions and our formal church activities, we should be having moments that lead to momentum so that we are propelled forward so that we can bring others on board, give them a moment so they can then get to momentum. Keep them moving toward Christ. He will come again. He will be known. And the silence will be shattered. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in a world where the silence is deafening, whether it be a situation in our immediate life, in the life of those in our family or close friendships, or just the silence that comes from a culture that has forgotten you. Lord, we know that you are love and you love us and you keep your promises and you're coming again and and we long for that day. But Lord, sometimes it seems hard to, to believe that it's actually going to happen. So Lord, give us the moments and the momentum to get us through the silence, to break the silence ourselves with your help so that people will know who you are, draw closer to you and keep momentum going toward you too. Father, we look so forward to the end of the silence when you come because that will be great, great joy in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So this morning, whether it's, whether it's your sin that's causing the silence, something you're doing and you know it's causing silence between you and God, whether it's something in your family or you're just so frustrated and worried and anxious about the culture because of the silence that seems to be so persistent, take joy because Jesus is coming. And that's why we light the second Advent candle, because Jesus is coming to shatter the silence.